The HSJ Health Check podcast is sponsored by Cisco. Hello and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and this week I'm joined by Deputy Editor Dave West and Senior Correspondent Rebecca Thomas. And as ever, we will be discussing the biggest news and issues in health policy right now. Last week, HSJ hosted its first ever virtual integrated care summit, during which we were given a rare interview with NHS England Chief Executive Simon Stevens. I think this is just one of a couple of interviews given by Mr Stevens over the last six months and during the COVID peak. So needless to say, it generated quite a few very interesting headlines. So, Dave, you fielded the questions to the NHF, NHS chief executive. So um, could you tell listeners some of the standout points from the interview? Yeah, thanks, Annabelle. And um, I was particularly um, pleased to be able to question the, the chief executive of the NHS, especially this year for 45 minutes or so, given the, the surrounding conditions, which obviously put, I mean, a lot of uh, stress and a lot of things going on for for people all up and down the service including at the top and um, certainly um, Simon Simon has a lot of uh, pressures and stresses going on at the minute one would expect Um, and uh, it's also uh, as well as um, getting Simon's take on things it's an opportunity to reflect on how some of the big the big issues facing the service right now and uh, how those at the top are are approaching those or having to having to deal with them Um, and one of them, which I think we're right on the in the thick of, right on the cusp of, um, and were when we talked to Simon on Friday, was the trade-offs uh, for the health service, health and care services, um, during this period when they're really trying to restore normal health services, non-COVID health services. That's been the big priority of the NHS since about June, July, uh, but now also facing this growing potential uh, second peak of coronavirus in in the UK which is going to make it very difficult for the for the NHS to continue with normal services and trying to tackle um, most most glaringly the elective care backlog but also do things about all other kind of um, all the other non-COVID services which have been affected and I just thought I'd um, one of the things about running these summits as we did with our, our integrated care summit last last week which Simon spoke at is that you get feedback from some senior people out in the other senior people out in the system and I just thought I'd read this quote um, to a, a non-attributable but to, from a um, an integrated care system executive lead and very experienced healthcare leader um, talking about the fact that it is going to be extremely difficult for the NHS to restore um, planned operations and try to keep the waiting list down over the next few weeks and months if COVID comes back, but also about the wider sweep of health services, um, health and care services struggling to um, struggling to provide the normal service that people expect from the NHS at the moment. And the, the quote in particular, she said, was... Um, I fear that the healthcare we once all took for granted is becoming less and less likely something we will all enjoy again in any medium term, uh, which I think the the sort of uh, the extent of that comment 
the seriousness of that comment struck me, and and I think there's an issue about um, which which uh, Simon, Sir Simon Stevens and others are dealing with about really what's the what's the medium term effect of coronavirus on the NHS, and I'm, I'm not saying we're going to sort of get to the heart of that here uh, because because we're dealing uh, as Sir Simon with with the, what's happening in the moment, um, but I might just discuss it in a in a second. Um, but Simon's comment in particular about those trade, making those trade-offs uh, uh, in terms of restoring elective care was to acknowledge that there are indeed trade-offs. They have the, the health service uh, was asked at the end of last week to to revisit its escalation plans for uh, coronavirus if cases and hospitalizations continue to rise, which will mean um, which will mean systems and um, organisations and sites and so on looking at well if there are substantial numbers of coronavirus patients um, in this area that we need to deal with how can we what what can we do with that situation to try to continue as much non-covid health services as we possibly can and simon said that we the health service would leave it as late as possible to um to essentially turn off some non-covid health services uh, uh, in particular thinking of elective care and he's very very keen to stress that actually the health service has never turned off everything uh, which of course is absolutely true and this kind of stuff about quiet hospitals at the moment is is nonsense um, but there are a lot of a lot of there would be substantial effects uh, if if the coronavirus keeps uh, cases keep coming and keep coming to hospital and Simon did acknowledge that uh, there's an interesting issue which again he acknowledged although couldn't expand on much that the um, at the moment the the resurgence in cases is quite regionalised uh, in the southwest and the southeast and the east of England there is not much at all by way of uh, increasing cases and increasing hospitalizations which might mean that we get uh, get a much more regional response from the NHS than we did in peak one for example the northwest might need to um, delay a lot more operations while the southwest might not need to delay much at all but all that we won't know and, uh, and, until we uh, see what happens over the next few months uh, mm. I just wanted to ask Dave sorry did he did he kind of um, mention at all that part the private sector might play going forward because obviously last time it was incredibly important there was that kind of landmark deal yeah no we didn't talk in detail about it uh, unfortunately um i think the i think the answer is they want it to play a big part and in the sense in some parts of the country it will play a, an even bigger part because they what happened in peak one was a, they block booked the entire uh, private healthcare uh, sector and actually initially kept a lot of it free because they were thinking they might have to actually send coronavirus patients to some of it in some cases uh, but it fairly you know once once um, we got to kind of beyond mid-April it became clear that actually the NHS was going to be just about be able to um, deal with the coronavirus patients itself and even the, the so Nightingale hospitals didn't have to be used a lot so actually what they you know what in retrospect you would have done was send um, en masse elective patients to the private sector and not worry too much about coronavirus patients, uh, trying to keep any or move any coronavirus patients to the private sector. Uh, so they will be hoping that that happens if there is another peak that, it, that, that a lot of elective can keep happening in the private sector. But um, uh, but the nature of the deal is changing, it has changed and is changing, as you said, of the, of the financial arrangement. So, you know, and it's um, it, it, perhaps it brings me on to speaking about money uh, without actually answering your question um, but uh, the you know in the first wave 
I think there genuinely was a kind of blank check approach and the, the Chancellor said, well, the NHS can spend whatever it takes to get through this. And that was the approach that was taken. You know, like, uh, hospital chief execs were kind of saying, you know, they've never seen such of circumstances where they're able to spend such vast sums of taxpayers' money without without kind of controls on it. Um, whereas this time round uh, at the minute, certainly it looks like there will be a lot more caution about spending and, and local areas have been actually given prospective budgets for the rest of the year, which they're expected to live within rather than just being able to retrospectively claim back whatever they needed to spend. Um, but we have, you know, Simon has um, taken part in these annual summits for the last few years and, and carried out other interviews with HSJ and nearly every time we spend some quite a lot of time talking about money and Simon is um, you know has become somewhat notorious over the years for being able to negotiate the NHS's funding um, with his comments public comments sometimes at, to HSJ and, and sometimes to others um, but what I think was considering we do there is meant to be a spending review this autumn coming up in November uh, and considering the financial situation of the NHS is it's certainly not great and is um, has much changed over the last few months. It was notable that Simon didn't really uh, want to send or didn't send, in my interpretation, any significant messages about funding. He said that uh, in terms of NHS funding specifically, he said that you know the NHS has its long-term funding uh, settlement. Um, there are, you know, as he noted, other parts related to the NHS that weren't settled and, and he talked about social care and the need for a funding settlement there. Um, but he, he, he recognised that because of there's such huge uncertainty for the government over the, and everyone else over the next three to six months about what's going to happen with coronavirus that, you know, his, 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 I think he recognised that there wasn't really much point in, um, in the government giving a sort of long term fixed funding settlement and giving an enormous amount of thought to, um, to, what, uh, to what it's going to need to spend on the NHS, uh, which is, you know, makes some sense. But of course, behind the scenes, there will be negotiations on these things and a lot of there should be a lot of thought being given to that issue that I started out with about well, what what has happened to health services during uh, to other health services as a result of coronavirus. You know, the easiest one and the one that gets focused on a lot is the elective waiting list, which has uh, you know grown and long long wait has grown. Um, but there's a lot of other more complicated things to to look at, whether that be mental health demand, which you know um, Rebecca wrote a piece not long ago about a, a, a trust in particular doing some work predicting 30% growth in demand over the next two years. Um, but I would also point to um, general potential unmet, uh, potentially uh, a kind of almost sort of frontier shift backwards in how well health and care services are meeting the needs um, and making themselves accessible to uh, perhaps excluded groups or to people living with long-term conditions at home and things like that and we have very little visibility on whether those people are getting less access to the services they need but there's some sort of um, alarming indicators like like the, on, the ongoing um, excess deaths at home which we've, we've talked about before that it's still a, remains a mystery what's why that's taking place. Dave did he um he talk about um, the long-term plan settlement and uh, whether that those that that funding em envelope is really adequate anymore and needs to be thrown out, out the window. I know in mental health services there are big questions about the 2.3 billion, and yeah. if we are 
for most services are going to get a 30 percent um uptick um mm. well that's it i mean he acknowledged that um he acknowledged that a you know, he obviously believes it's still a good thing that it's got a long-term funding settlement whereas local government etc hasn't got one don't know what they're getting next year full stop um but um uh, but yeah acknowledged hey there is more money being spent on the nhs this year than was planned quite a lot more but obviously that's all going on coronavirus um stuff um and yes he did acknowledge i think he described it as one of the moving parts is the question of well what do we do about all the follow-on follow-on after effects of coronavirus um so he's acknowledging there's a cost there um but was not particularly um uh, was not particularly uh, robust in his style as sort of throwing that gauntlet down to the Treasury, if you like, and saying, well, are you going to pay for it? And we've seen over the last, um, you know, going back to the summer, there's been spending announcements and things that the NHS has asked for have, you know, very clearly been turned down. So the funding for the uh, for kind of intermediate care type stuff or sea coal facilities, um, you know, rehabilitation facilities for, for coronavirus patients, but also step down care for non-coronavirus facility people which would have helped David Winter get move people out of hospital um it has been turned down by the treasury certainly for now um and perhaps there were requests for mental health funding in there as well um uh, and we haven't seen i think the situations we haven't seen the capital quite dished out for improving um, mental health uh, for replacing mental health um dormitory wards either so they're sort of yeah there are a lot of question marks there but i think i guess you've got to recognize in the round the government is spending a heck of a lot of money and they've got to prioritize things um but it, but it's good to be um we may get to a little bit more honesty over the next few weeks about you know where the shortcoming and the shortfalls are going to be and what the nhs can actually do against demand um, do, you think, do you think he i do wonder do you think he might throw the gauntlet down um as it were if, if he is leaving in april mm. is, is this could there I mean, A, will he, will he have the, um, uh, would he be able to make that last push for a, to the tre treasury or is it kind of a, I've done, I've done my big piece, I, I want to go now, I'm going to go. Yeah, more of a wind down. I don't know, I think in any other circumstances you would expect Simon Stevens to sort to go with a bang, um, and you know I was going to come on to talk about some of the structural stuff, which you know it it has been written. He would quite like to achieve before he goes, um, but um, uh, but yeah, given we're living in the middle of a sort of international and national crisis, it it might seem clearly they're important points, and I you'd hope he would find a way to make them, but it it might seem a bit uh, to me it would seem a little bit wrong to make a massive sort of foot stamping case for nhs funding when um you know when we look at the state of social care and what was really needed is long-term reform of social care and of course there's all kinds of um you know the economic situation is obviously dire and there's going to be massive sort of social and public you know repercussions of all that which is going to require massive public spending so it might not be the right circumstances to sort of stump your feet about the nhs but that's sort of speculation he did when he um you know the other interview he has given during coronavirus times um was um the andrew marshall in i think in early july uh, when he did make a point of um of asking for a long-term settlement for social care and instead of you know making any particular points about the nhs 
Um, but I was, you know, so quite right that there's, um, you know, HSJ, uh, uh, editor Alistair McClellan, I think, has written before that, you know, Simon would be likely to leave over the next sort of period. I forget the exact timing, but something like, you know, probably would time out next year. Um, so, and it's been stuff in the Sunday papers as there's kind of a constant sort of background rumble about um, the possibility of Simon leaving um obviously is a real possibility over the next year um you would imagine he's going to kind of play things by ear um but um uh but there is a one thing he has he did talk about at the summit it was um nhs legislation and for the last couple of years the government and the nhs have been talking about legislation to roll back some of the, the the internal market to roll back a lot of the the Andrew Lansley 2012-13 reforms and to uh, take forward integration instead um, and what um, Simon said to us was that he expects a bill to be drafted in the first half of 2020 um, and he also said that he was keen for the NHS to push forward with getting a lot of as many CCG mergers out of the way as possible by next April, because while there's been quite a few CCG mergers already, there's still quite a lot still to take place. Um, so he obviously, despite the operational coronavirus, you know, plus winter, plus Brexit, is is keen to press on with, um, you know, like a lot of people in the health service wants to take away the potential benefits in terms of integration and collaboration from what's happened in, with the virus uh, response. Um, but he does appear keen to complete some of that legislation and restructure. And you know, it wouldn't be surprising if he, if he did want to sort of show some meaningful progress on more meaningful progress on all that before uh, he does leave, if, if he does indeed leave over the next uh, six or 12 months. Mm. So it sounds like the two could potentially be coinciding maybe if you know you can get the legislation through in, in the in the spring of next year yeah I mean it, you know if he's really going to leave in the spring then there's no way you can get a bill actually through is there so it, mm. um, you know bills do take time to go through parliament and then to actually be implemented and that sort of thing um, but it could you know it could at least get to a, to the stage of being drafted and laid in parliament or whatever happens with these things um take it to another to another stage but indeed that relies on there being you know that, that relies on there being truth to these rumors of him leaving and the rumors have been going around for quite a long time and i suspect there's other factors at, at play it won't, it won't it won't be true until it's actually and until the, the leaving date is actually announced will it so mm -hmm. i think i think one last thing perhaps to bring up um before we move on, is just um, some of the comments um, he made around the NHS's approach to improving diversity. I thought they're mm. quite interesting, and also kind of the impact on its on its BAME staff during the peak. Um, and it, yeah, I just I'd be I'd be interested to hear kind of what you thought of that. Um, is this something that he's always been quite vocal about during his tenure? Well, I wouldn't want to give, I wouldn't want to say too sure. And, um, you know, maybe you've got some thoughts, Annabelle, or, uh, as workforce correspondent or, um, or Rebecca. But um, I think it has been made a priority, was made a priority, pretty high priority shortly after he became NHS England chief exec in 2014, I think. Um, uh, and, you know, he has often raised it and pressed that and introduced the whole 
Rails workforce racial equality standard and supported. Um, you know, it was until recently Yvonne Coghill to to lead that and to lead it pretty uh, pretty boldly. But of course, you know, as all the results show, the actual progress that's been made has been somewhat limited. And um, you know, we did ask him about um, about the fact that in Birmingham, as Rebecca reported recently. In the Birmingham and Solihull SDP, there are, I think, no executive directors or perhaps no directors full stop in the NHS who are not white. Um, and so, you know, how can a whole system, a pretty big uh, chunk of the country, go without making any progress on that? But yeah, I mean, he's, he's certainly, he's broadly, generally sought to um, push it. And we published an interview this morning, uh, was it Wednesday morning, um, by Nick Catuno uh, with Yvonne Coghill, in which she makes some some pretty bold points about the fact for a need for a kind of reset and, and does she herself talks about the likelihood of Simon leaving at some point soon and the fact that will probably necessitate a kind of refreshing the reset button on how the NHS is approaching diversity in its own leadership. Mm. Did you want to, wait, you want to come in on that? Well I mean um, so I think it's it's to his to his credit he did he has um, he has made made an made an issue of um race equality in the res uh, i mean but you just how much of an impact has it really made you look at nhs england's board and it, really there are the, there's no diversity of exec amongst the executive directors um, right um, um, yeah. a little bit slightly a better little, than when you arrive but not yeah if that makes sense so I think if Yvonne is talking about a reset she's she's got a good point there does need to be some kind of uh, um I, I think obviously we discussed this like last week action beyond the res <laughs> does that make sense um and perhaps um I don't know roles which aren't just the kind of the di diversity and inclusion role right because that's a that's it's an important role but perhaps not a role of genuine power, is it? Um, if you think about power structures in the NHS. Yeah, bringing a, a broader broader concept of action. I mean, there's been a, a real, you know, there's been a lot of focus on it over the last six months um, related to uh, Black Lives Matters and and um, to COVID, hasn't there? But it's sustaining that is, uh, yeah, keeping it actually up near to the top of the priority list is uh, certainly can be a big, big thing for whoever is leading the NHS. Absolutely. Thanks, Dave. Um, I think now's a good time to move on to our um, our final topic of discussion um, today, which is kind of um, more in Rebecca's realm. So um, mental health, obviously, um, you know, Rebecca, you're a mental health correspondent. I don't know whether you'd agree that perhaps the sector has been slightly kind of um, overshadowed by some of the um, pressures on the acute sector during the last six months. But you wrote a really interesting um, comment piece this week. Um, and it's kind of a long running issue that I know you've been keeping an eye on for a while. But um, I think it'd be a really interesting thing to just kind of um, delve, delve into a little bit more um, for podcast listeners. Yes. So, um I mean, most podcast listeners will be aware about the new stories last week um, and the CQC um, published a pretty horrific report about a um, private sector unit for women with learning disabilities called um, U-Trees, run by Signet Healthcare. 
it was awful awful report um staff caught on cctv physically and emotionally abusing patients slapping and kicking patients um and i mean while i say it was horrific sadly it wasn't surprising um and it's it's partly the point of i, I made in made this week in week in my column um a year uh, more than a year on from Walton Hall these sort of scandals are becoming commonplace now really particularly within the in independent sector units it's almost as if kind of um although they're horrific um people are not surprised that they are happening if that makes sense and um and so I did a little and I've done a little dig, dig, digging into the some of the so into uh Signet Healthcare, particularly, um, some readers might be uh, might might be aware. So, but it took over Walton Hall. If you remember that scandal, it took over Walton Hall uh, in August two thousand eighteen from the Danshaw Group. Uh, now, it took over Walton Hall and a number of other hospitals. Um, uh, let me bring the list up here. But you've uh, um, got. So at least five of those Danshaw Group hospitals have been been rated inadequate. Three, um, uh, two requires improvement. Um, and if you do some further digging into the CQC's registration of these units, you'll find at least uh, at least five, oh, rather six, who who which were previously owned by Castlebeck Care. Uh, I don't know if you've, either of you, if that name rings a bell with either of you. It does, but I'm not going to comment any uh, further <laughs> uh, yes. for fear of putting my foot wrong slash uh, getting in legal issues. <laughs> so for listeners, Castlebeck Care ran Winterbourne View, uh, which of course was the uh, one of well, one of the first in kind of one of the first major scandals into the abuse of people with learning disabilities and autism in a private unit. Um, the world was shocked about it. Ministers, politicians, NHS leaders said no more. Um, a few years later, you had done, yeah, not a few years later, sorry. Um, in 2019, you had Walton Hall. Um, and just looking at the CQC registrations, you do wonder why extra vigilance hasn't been given to these particular units that were run by by organizations know where um cultural where these abusive cultures have been able to develop um and that isn't just i mean while while signet healthcare having taken over these units should have paid more more vigilance to this and more scrutiny um uh, that it's also a very much responsibility of the commissioners nhs and, and local commissioners obviously local authorities because some of the patients will be local authority funded partly as well um but that's that organizational um memory of this these scandals has sort of been seems to appears to have been forgotten um and um, of course i mean i made the, um, made the point in the article but the nhs is kind of a a, a victim into its own um, bed crisis within mental health and learning disability services because it has no choice but to use make use of the private sector and Signet is one of the or the if not the biggest provider um, so right now you can't really get around that but um, uh, so but that doesn't mean uh, extra attention to the management and quality management um, I don't know if just I mean this the, the 
the the pandemic will have put, put stop a pause to all of this, but NHS England um, made the required CCGs in the last um, last planning guidance, last contract. To um, there was a requirement that CCGs will have to start um, actually visiting um, patients in cam cams wards when they get sent out of area, um, which that was a step step towards extra vigilance, but. Um, has it, has it put a stop to, you know, because there's, you know, we're hearing a lot about um, visits to care homes in general at the moment. And, you know, there are big care, it's going to be big, um, there are care quality concerns if the more closed, you know, closed environments there are. And I forget, I think the CQC and NHS England have both highlighted that it's where you have closed environments a long way from people's home, um, you know, long-term care, that, that the risks are there. I just... Is the are, are people able to go in, whether it's CCGs or CQC and things, or anyone else at the moment? Uh, for, um, I, I definitely um, variable, probably toward, and I would say, I, from what I'm hearing, more towards the end of not actually being able to go there. Families, at least, um, I hear, are quite frequently being denied visits, primarily because of COVID nineteen risks. Um, obviously, the CQC went on a digital um they they launched a digital um digital um inspections during during covid um i'm not, not actually sure whether they've fully restarted their regime uh, tentatively but um you'd hope that they've got some method for identifying risk and really high risk services like like these that you're talking about was it you know you mentioned this the signaling was this i might have missed this but was this one of the ones that they took over from the same company as well yes yeah, so this was a, another U trees was a danshaw group um danshaw another danshaw one um i don't I, it wasn't a castle bit care as far as as far as i'm aware although you do have to yeah you have to dig quite deep deeply um in terms of finding out um a lot of these independent sector companies have different arms um and different company names <laughs> but yeah, as far as i'm aware U trees wasn't Castlebeck. And has it come back on Signet much yet? And obviously, clearly, they're being sort of uh, dragged through it by the um, dragged through the, the the mud by the CQC. But as you said, there's only so much impact that seems to have on the however many times that's now happened. Is there any other comeback on that organisation? Well, I'm not sure there is yet because I, um, I think in the past couple of months I've seen the provider um, make announcements about two new two new units being open so clearly there is um, a confidence there to invest able to expand yeah I'll hopefully replace but the uh, and the other thing i was just wondering um uh, was the one thing nhs england did set in train in response to some of the care quality problems that have been seen in i think in relation to children and young people um with learning disabilities or long-term mental health needs was that a, a task a task force I can't remember when this was, was it late last year? The kind of task force where there seemed like some acknowledgement that actually the NHS did have a responsibility to make a strategic or uh, kind of step change in the quality of services. And do we know if that's got anywhere despite coronavirus? Uh, so as far as I'm aware, the work stopped during coronavirus um, and meetings have now started again from, from this September. 
Um, so yeah, in invariably that coronavirus has massively delayed that work. Um, the task force were supposed to make rapid recommendations. <laughs> um, whether it's going to be doing that this year or not um, I, uh, is uh, questionable. Um, if we do have another um, bad wave of COVID-19, I mean, operationally, all those leader, the leaders on that task force will be drawn drawn away to operational duties. Another example of how COVID has disrupted the normal workings of things. Um, thanks, Rebecca. That's a really interesting um, issue, and I'm sure that we'll kind of see more of it, kind of maybe delving into more of it over the next few sort of weeks and months. But um, I think now it's time to draw the podcast to a close. Thank you both. Um, for coming on this week and thank you as ever to listeners um just your weekly reminder to share and subscribe to our podcast so it pops up in your feed um, ready and waiting each week and do get in touch if there's something that you'd like to see us discuss thanks for listening and we'll see you next time